NHL offseason usually follows a fairly predictable pattern once the Stanley Cup has been won. The player awards are handed out, the entry draft takes place, and then free agency begins for those in need of a new contract. And while all of those events were still on the calendar, the NHL landscape was anything but predictable in the summer of 2004. The collective bargaining agreement between the league and its players was set to expire, and there was an historic battle on the horizon. After failing in their bid to implement a salary cap a decade earlier, the owners were more committed to fight for one this time around, a result the players were determined to avoid. As both sides prepared for the most contentious negotiation in the league's history, the issue of Todd Bertuzzi's ongoing suspension was little more than an afterthought. He, like the rest of the players, had no idea when he'd play his next game in the National Hockey League. We put that team back on the map, man. Like, there were some bleak times there for a while. For that next five or six years, he was the best power forward in the game. There was a confidence that we believed if we went out and played the way we were capable, we could score every shift. Now it's kind of league-wide. I want to come see the West Coast Express, you know, see these guys in action. That line sold tickets. That line cared about the community. That line gave back. We knew that we would never be satisfied unless we would win the cup. Everything, the whole thing. It's like a bad nightmare happened. In a matter of seconds, I mean, lives basically changed forever. While the aftermath of the Bertuzzi-Moore incident would be felt for years to come, the days, weeks, and months that immediately followed were filled with guilt, remorse, and grief for Bertuzzi, according to his close friend, Marcus Nasland. Well, he was crushed, obviously, and, and it's obviously impossible to undo something, but that happened. I don't think he meant to, to hurt him that way, and but... It happened, he knocked him out, but then the aftermath of, of all that was crazy. And he couldn't appear anywhere there for a while. And the media focused from not just the, the hockey world, but, but from the news world and the Oprah show and all that stuff. It must have been very difficult to handle. Not wanting to draw any more unwanted attention on himself, Bertuzzi stayed out of public view. Though he had limited contact with his teammates at the time, they made efforts to support him and witnessed what he was going through, as described by Henrik and Daniel Sedin. I don't think people saw anything. They didn't see him like crying and being upset and going through all the emotions that he went through and us as teammates trying to support him and, and Marcus being part of the whole thing as well. I don't think people saw anything that I, that I went through. and Todd didn't want it to happen and, and it was very unfortunate that it happened, but he... He took it hard, and that was tough to see as, as a teammate. Obviously, you want the best for for Steve Moore. Absolutely, that's the number one thing. But we also saw what Todd went through, and that was no fun for sure. And that's still in the in our memories today for sure. Being close to him and, and just realizing what what he went through day after day, and maybe still to this day, I think he's probably on the back of his mind. As Daniel mentioned, Steve Moore's health was top of mind. Moore had been released from hospital and was continuing his rehabilitation from neck injuries and a concussion in Denver, but there was no timeline for his recovery. Neither Moore nor Bertuzzi were speaking about the incident, but many others were. 
In fact, there'd been enough public outrage about it that authorities in British Columbia launched an investigation. And on June 24th, the criminal justice branch announced that Bertuzzi was being charged with assault causing bodily harm. Publicly, it sparked a raucous debate about whether the justice system has any place in professional sports. For Bertuzzi, it completely altered the scope of the consequences he'd face for his actions. Everything. The whole thing. Everything. Everything was kind of, it's like a bad nightmare happened. The reality of that nightmare led to some even darker days for Bertuzzi, according to teammate Ed Jovanovsky. When you feel like the whole world's coming down on you, you don't know where this is going. You have the legal process now, like you're getting charged for something that happened on the ice. You're hoping that more is okay. What's my future in hockey going to be? Probably had a little bit of that guilt. I let my team down. So I think everything kind of just, it puts you in some dark spots. You know, we've all been down when things aren't going well or whatever the case may be. You start feeling like you can hide in your room and turn the lights off. And I'm sure those were a lot of the moments for Todd. And listen, and I'm being as honest as I can. I know no one feels sorry for me. And I'm not asking for anyone. I I live and die by who I am and what I do. And I know who I am. All these people that say negative things and criticize me and all this kind of stuff, they've never spent any time and all that and I have some of the greatest friends in the entire world and two of the greatest kids in the entire world that you're able to find some kind of light and positive out of having people like that in your life. While Bertuzzi dealt with the legal ramifications of his actions from his hometown in Ontario, the rest of the Canucks had also dispersed for the summer, awaiting word on a new working arrangement with the NHL. The CBA had expired in mid-July, and the two sides were no closer to an agreement as the summer began to draw to a close. Canucks forward Trevor Linden was the president of the NHL Players Association at the time. As a group, I think we understood whether you were a player rep or not. I think you had a pretty good understanding where we were and why. It had gotten so difficult, and I think the owners felt that the economics were just so out of touch that... It was headed to a pretty significant disagreement, so it was no surprise. The writing was on the wall well before that summer. There was a lot of stuff that I'm I'm sure Trevor wasn't allowed to talk about, but leading up to the lockout, it helped to have Trevor in in that role because you could bounce things off him and and get an answer. And, And obviously Trevor, being the person he is and with his professionalism, you knew that he a key figure for the player's side and someone that we trusted. And was hoping to make the right decisions, both short and long term, obviously. Having seen the league shut down for half a season 10 years earlier, teams and players began to make contingency plans in the event it happened again. Younger players on entry-level contracts already had a place to go. They were eligible to play for the NHL's minor league affiliates in the American Hockey League. Veterans, meanwhile, looked to various leagues and teams across Europe for potential opportunities. In late August, the hockey world's attention shifted back to the game itself, as the 2004 World Cup of Hockey got underway. The best-on-best tournament pitted many of the world's top players against each other in an eight-nation event. Eight Canucks were part of the tournament, including four on Team Sweden, Marcus Nasland, Matthias Olin, and the Sedins. It was an exciting time for our national team because we had a group that hadn't won 
yet with uh, Sandin and Forsberg and, and Lidstrom obviously leading the way, but also with Alfredson and a lot of the young guys coming up too with Sederberg and, and the Twins and, and so forth. So we had a good team. On a personal level, I, w- I was hoping to play with Peter Forsberg after many years, and he had his foot problems. So we had a line with Forsberg, myself, and Zetterberg that ahead of time I was very excited about. But Peter played, but he had a difficult time with his foot at that point. And I remember day before we had our opening game, he was out in sports stores in Stockholm buying different skates to try on because he was panicking because he couldn't get the skate to work. It worked well enough for Forsberg, Nasland, and the rest of Team Sweden in the preliminary round as they went unbeaten in their three games in the European pool. But the Swedes fell in the quarterfinal to the Czech Republic, who were in turn dismissed by the eventual champion, Team Canada. Jovanovski was once again part of that winning squad, one that likely would have included Bertuzzi had he been eligible for selection. As the hockey world shone a spotlight on its top players, the big question lingered in the background. Was any progress being made on a new agreement between the league and its players? There was a lot of uncertainty going into the tournament and not being sure what to do after because we obviously had a lot of talks and discussions with the Players Association ahead of time and and kind of got a feel that we wouldn't be ready to start the season in October. But you still had hope that something would get resolved. And I think in hindsight as players... We just pushed it to the final. We just pushed and pushed and pushed. You know, had we engaged two or three years before that and said, let's have some meaningful conversations about how we can remedy this, we might have gotten a better deal at the end of the day. But we decided to push it to the very end. And at that point, the league was like, we're done. And it wasn't a choice for them. It was like, this just isn't sustainable. A day after the World Cup concluded, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman held a press conference to announce the lockout. It is my somber duty to report that at today's meeting, the NHL Board of Governors unanimously reconfirmed that NHL teams will not play at the expiration of the CBA until we have a new system which fixes the economic problems facing our game. This action is not taken lightly or eagerly. And when the union wants to stop the posturing and acknowledges that the problems are as real as our governor's resolve to fix them, we will be here ready to make a fair and meaningful agreement that will ensure and usher in a new era for our game. Edmund's full statement left little doubt as to how far apart the two sides were. It triggered a mass migration of NHL players to Europe over the next few weeks. Many prominent Canucks were among those who helped populate rosters in countries like Russia, Finland, and Sweden. But Nasland was not one of them, at least not initially. Well, I was hoping that we would get an NHL season going. And we had a bunch of guys that were skating in Vancouver. And I just felt until I knew for certain that the season would be canceled, I wanted to be in North America. Bertuzzi remained in Ontario. Many speculated that he, too, would attempt to join a European club in an effort to get back on the ice. The International Ice Hockey Federation eliminated that possibility, announcing it would honor the NHL suspension. While it may have seemed like another door closing, it wasn't one Bertuzzi was trying to walk through at the time. I think I needed time away from the sport and from playing. 
to kind of concentrate on myself and my family and kind of take a deep breath from everything that's going on. Tried to just stay in shape as best as I could, worked out every single day, kind of gotten a pretty good routine with that and all that. But you know, the last thing in my mind was going to play hockey. Bertuzzi did receive one invitation to play from his friend and teammate Brad May. With the NHL season in limbo, May organized a charity game against a local junior team, the Vancouver Giants, and he offered Bertuzzi an opportunity to participate. I can tell you one thing. After seeing my buddy go through this, he became a better friend and a closer friend. I know who this guy is, like, through and through. I'm proud to call him my friend. And we were brothers. I know that's kind of, you know, all these cliches we use, but we were a tight group of guys, and we had each other's backs. Bertuzzi had a couple of months to mull it over. The lockout continued, and so did the legal process with respect to the Moore incident. If convicted of criminal charges, Bertuzzi could face up to a year and a half in prison. It was hard to gauge where public sentiment lay in Vancouver, which meant Bertuzzi's decision to go ahead and play in the charity game was not without risk. How would he be received by the nearly 17,000 fans in attendance at the Pacific Coliseum? As it turned out, when he stepped on the ice for that December 12th exhibition, he was greeted by a standing ovation. It just showed again the connection he has and had with the Connect fans. And I was very happy for him with all the stuff that happened after the uh, the Moore incident for him to get some love his way. He really deserved that and it was a fun night overall. Though not an endorsement of his sucker punch on Moore, the reaction was certainly an indication that Canucks fans were willing to support Bertuzzi through whatever lay ahead. Ten days after the charity game, Bertuzzi appeared in court and pled guilty to the assault charge after agreeing to a plea bargain with prosecutors. He was given a conditional discharge, a year's probation, and 80 hours of community service. Conditions that, if met, would result in Bertuzzi avoiding a criminal record. At Toyota, our vehicles have always had quality and durability built right in. Because in winter, even our potholes have potholes. Quality means everything to us because it means everything to you. Lease a 2023 RAV4 LE all-wheel drive from $99 weekly for 60 months at 7.19% APR with $2,800 down. Order yours today. Visit shoptoyota.ca or your Pacific Toyota dealer. It's time to Toyota. Support for Unreal West Coast Express comes from New Balance. Hey, I'm an active guy, and New Balance has literally supported me for well over a decade. From distance running to trail running to walking my dog, I've always got New Balance on my feet. Lately, it's been all about the Fresh Foam X series for me. 1080s for the road, Kieros for the trail, and 880s for everything else. Support your feet and support local. Check out the lineup of Fresh Foam X athletic shoes today at your local New Balance store in Richmond, Delta, and Langley. Likely no one was happier than Bertuzzi to put 2004 in the rearview mirror, though he and the rest of the NHL players were still without a new deal. A salary cap remained the main sticking point. The league was insistent, the players resistant. With time running out to save the season, Nasland headed back to Sweden to join the Sedins in Forsberg at his old club, Modo. And in hindsight, it probably would have been a better decision to play the full season in Sweden, but at least I got a chance to play for Moto. And unfortunately, Peter broke his hand the first game when I got back when he collided with Joanne France. And so we lost 
in the quarterfinals against Ferrystad, who had a, a strong team with Chara and Suri and a bunch of other top guys, not just Swedish guys, playing for their team. Naslin, like almost every NHL player, had a provision in his deal that allowed him to return to North America once the National Hockey League was back up and running. But those clauses were never exercised. On February 16, 2005, the NHL became the first major North American sports league to cancel an entire season. It's a day Linden remembers vividly. That was a dark, dark day that we kind of circled back at the 12th hour to try to get something done. It was a fascinating day because Mario Lemieux was part of that group and Wayne Gretzky was part of that group. And it was kind of the last ditch effort to kind of save a season. And when that kind of fell through, it was, yeah, I'll never forget the feeling. It was sadness. It was a bit of disbelief that we are going to lose an entire season. It was just an incredible empty feeling that we're letting down the game. A day after the league announced the season had been scrapped, Steve Moore filed a civil lawsuit in a Colorado court. To no one's surprise, Todd Bertuzzi was named. But so too were the Canucks organization, GM Brian Burke, head coach Mark Crawford, and Brad May, who, like Bertuzzi, had made post-game comments in the heat of the moment that were now part of a conspiracy charge. I don't believe he should have been injured and hurt, and I, I mean, my heart aches for that. I think the whole situation sucked 100% for everybody, for hockey, for Todd Bertuzzi, for Steve Moore, both teams, both fan bases. It heightened a lot of anger and hate, but... It was a sporting event. It was a hockey game that went off the rails, and unfortunately this happened. But I got zero respect for Steve Moore. He brought me into it, and it's a personal thing. I'm a Vancouver Canuck at that time. I'm with my boys. Todd Bertuzzi is a dear friend, always will be. I'm proud to say that, and I'm excited to say that. And the whole thing sucked. Steve Moore had responsibility to protect himself and to actually be a hockey player at that moment and not do what he did. Now, that doesn't invite the hit he, he suffered. That doesn't invite anything else. But he's got a responsibility in this, 100%, and I'll fight that fight all day long. Also, he fought Matt Cook early in this game. That doesn't get you out of trouble. Don't tell me that you did your job and you fought Matt Cook and all your wrongs are put to the side. That just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. And um, anybody that wants to trumpet that line or that narrative, I think, yeah, you're, you're clueless. And no. This is 2004, remember, not 2022. So very different, very different lens that you have to and must look through. While Bertuzzi's legal team had prepared him for this possibility, the filing reinforced the fact that this incident was nowhere near behind him. He remained in the thick of litigation for more and suspended from playing in the NHL whenever it was set to resume. It was fair to wonder if Bertuzzi's career was in fact over. I didn't know. Honestly, I I had no clue what was going to go down other than making sure I took the proper steps in order to allow Gary Batman and Daly to let them know that I know what ended up happening and I know that it's changed a lot of lives and that that I felt bad for the situation. Like No one wanted any of this to go down, definitely me. While Bertuzzi dealt with the latest legalities, many of his teammates were finishing up their year abroad as the European leagues wound to a close and crowned their champions in early spring. By comparison, the American Hockey League was just ramping up for its postseason back in North America. 
the AHL was enjoying a banner year thanks to the infusion of young talent that otherwise would have been playing NHL hockey. It was a season that would prove integral in the development of future impact players across the NHL, as well as for the way the game would be played moving forward. Goaltender Alex Ald was part of the young Canucks contingent playing in Winnipeg with the Manitoba Moose, a team that was benefiting both at the box office and on the bench with the NHL on hiatus. I think that was the best year and it would make sense to be one of the best years of AHL hockey because of the fact that so many teams kept their young guys down there. Uh, we had a great group in Winnipeg. And the other thing that was really nice about that season was there was none of the sort of like, I don't know, none of the bullshit around your team about this guy getting called up instead of that guy, because there's so many conflicting reasons for why a team would call someone up. And it isn't always the guy who's most deserving in the moment. And I get that, you know, you're doing these things for a lot of different reasons and where the guy's going to fit in the lineup, big term, long term sort of potential, all that sort of stuff. But it was like, hey, we were just a team playing hockey and having a lot of fun doing it. Alden the Moose made a run to the conference final in May, bowing out a round before the Calder Cup was decided in early June. It was time to look ahead to next season, but there was still no agreement in place. I can't tell you how many phone calls I got from players saying, okay, I've lost a year of my career. That's significant. My career is 10 years, 12 years, 8 years. I've just lost an entire season. So you're saying that I could lose another season? I got calls from players. I got calls from their wives, their partners. This is real. You know, my husband's been in the game for 10 years. He may never play again. You know, so those were real conversations. The idea of even further damage to the league didn't sit well with either side. They'd finally reached the point where they were willing to work together on a solution as opposed to simply winning the argument. We were speaking two languages. There was no agreement on any sort of way forward. It was complete polarization. When we started to kind of mesh and started to look at what a partnership could look like, certainly there were bumps in the roads and there was lots of issues when you talked about what's in the HRR number, what's not, this is getting technical, all those sorts of discussions, but we were speaking the same language. The biggest hurdle was cleared in early June when the players agreed to a rollback on their current contracts and a salary cap system moving forward. There was enough optimism that a resolution was on the horizon that the league began conducting business. The sale of the Anaheim Mighty Ducks, which had been agreed upon in February, was approved in mid-June. And the new owners, Henry and Susan Samueli, made Brian Burke their first hire. The former Canucks general manager now held the same title in Anaheim, as he and the rest of the hockey world awaited an announcement on a CBA. Finally, after 300 days... With the ratification of the collective bargaining agreement and with the draft drawing actually being conducted at this very moment, let me be the first to welcome you to our 2005-06 season. Opening night will take place on October 5th and all 30 clubs will be in action. We will return to play with some new rules and with a joint player league competition committee that will oversee the enforcement of the rules. We will return with a new method of deciding every regular season game that is tied through overtime. Thanks to the implementation of a shootout, every game will have a winner. Most of those rule changes were geared toward increasing offense. Referees would be instructed to crack down on hooking and holding, 
the two-line pass rule had been eliminated to allow more fast-break opportunities. Goalies were limited as to where they could play the puck in their own zone. The NHL wanted more flow and more goals. It wanted more teams to play the way the Canucks had been playing for the past few years. Vancouver appeared well-positioned to adapt to the new rules as well as to the salary cap. While many clubs had been flexing their financial muscles prior to the lockout, the Canucks had been making big gains on a relatively modest budget. Their player payroll for the previous season was nearly identical to the new $39 million ceiling, about half of what the New York Rangers had spent on salaries in 2003-04. But success leads to pay raises, and in a hard cap system, you can't pay everyone. GM Dave Nonis had most of his roster under contract with a few notable exceptions, including his captain. He remedied that matter fairly quickly, inking Naslin to a three-year deal worth $6 million per season in early August. Nonis had also been courting free agent Scott Niedermeyer, but it was Burke who lured the coveted defenseman to Anaheim where he could play with his brother Rob. Nonis hoped for better news with respect to Bertuzzi, who remained suspended indefinitely. Even though it was the lockout, I still had to be reinstated and go through the whole process with that. Bertuzzi and Moore had appeared separately at a reinstatement hearing back in late April, but no decision had been rendered. On August 8th, the league delivered its verdict and deemed Bertuzzi eligible to return to the National Hockey League. Among his listed reasons for his decision, Bettman cited the 20-game suspension already served and what he believed was genuine remorse on Bertuzzi's part for his actions against Moore. I'm still blessed that I was given the opportunity to be able to come back and to play. That's never been something I've overlooked. So I understand that Mr. Batman and, and Mr. Daly, they gave me the opportunity to be able to come back and to earn a living, try to chase for a Stanley Cup. Bertuzzi would be back in the Canucks lineup, but a couple of other notable names would not. With very little cap space left to work with, Nonis couldn't come to terms on a new deal with defenseman Brent Sopel and traded him to the New York Islanders for a second-round pick. He also chose to move on from Brad May in favor of using the money on a winger with more offensive upside, signing veteran Anson Carter to a one-year deal for $1 million. May went to market and shocked everyone by signing a two-year pact with the Colorado Avalanche. I wasn't brought back to Vancouver. I signed with Colorado, and I'm, I'm now a Colorado Avalanche. And to be honest, outside of my friendships, and God bless them, you know, they're lifelong, I frankly, at that time, could care less. You're in a career playing for another team and doing the thing that you have to do. And got signed by a general manager that at the time wanted you, and, and, um, and Pierre Lacroix, who was an amazing guy. Brian Burke had left and he's in Anaheim and, you know, not that he was on the ice, but right, like the, the whole thing changed after the lockout and every team did. Though he'd changed teams, May was still a defendant in a potential civil suit filed by Moore and was resolute in his stance on the incident in question. The move to add May was not well received by Avalanche fans, to say the least. Colorado's roster and coaching staff had undergone a significant overhaul and no one was quite sure how the Avs would fare in the upcoming season. The Canucks, on the other hand, appeared to be a legitimate contender in the view of reporter Ian McIntyre. That was still, you know, potentially a very good Canucks team the season after the lockout. Dave Nonis was the GM. He had basically retained the components of the team that had had such a good run from 01 to 04 under Mark Crawford, and he even retained Mark Crawford. I remember coming back into that year thinking, 
we have a good team. We have a chance to win. Like, I really felt that we were a team that could challenge. Linden wasn't alone. Numerous pundits and publications picked the Canucks to be near the top of the standings. Their roster boasted depth, experience, and high-end talent. With the West Coast Express back on the rails and the officials cracking down on hooking and holding, it appeared the sky was the limit for Naslin, Bertuzzi, and Morrison. Yeah, I agree. Like, I think everyone thought it was going to be just like they could all score 50 goals, you know, with the way the power plays, you know, there's so many more penalties. Who's going to possibly stop? No one could stop Bert when you could clutch and grab. How are you going to do it now? Most people shared Ald's view as the Canucks opened training camp in September. But while there was optimism abound on the outside, there were issues bubbling beneath the surface internally. Right from training camp, right from the golf tournament that we play at the start, we all knew this was going to be very, very, very difficult for some of us to coexist together. What Bertuzzi is alluding to in particular is his relationship with Mark Crawford. What had always been a somewhat strained dynamic with the head coach had evolved into a significant rift from Bertuzzi's perspective. But the opportunity to play again trumped his feelings, and he attempted to focus on his job as opposed to his immediate superior. Yeah, it was pretty obvious, and especially for the guys that knew Todd and Crow. I still think that they handled it in a way where it it didn't affect the group. They went about business professionally. Besides, the early season schedule presented enough hurdles for Bertuzzi and the Canucks. Given the market he played in and the notoriety of the incident, the reinstated winger knew he'd be under the microscope to a degree he'd not yet experienced. After opening the season at home, Vancouver played four straight road games and Bertuzzi was greeted with hostility. Fans booed and jeered. They ridiculed him with signs in the stands. Though he'd expected all of it, Bertuzzi wasn't able to convert the negativity into productivity. He managed just a single point in his first four games before scoring his first goal of the season in game number five. Every rink that we went to, I was uh, enemy number one, and every media wanted to find as much information they can. I just, I don't know. It was just, it was just a hard, it was the whole thing was hard. And it would get harder as the Canucks were slated to play the Avalanche three times in the first month of the season. Their initial road trip behind them, the Canucks strung together a few wins and entered their first matchup with Colorado, having won four straight. NHL disciplinarian Colin Campbell attended that game, which was played in Vancouver without any sign of bad blood. Morrison paced the Canucks with a goal and two assists as part of a 6-4 victory. Bertuzzi picked up a point and took a penalty, while May scored his first goal in an avalanche sweater. Five days later, May and the Avs played host to the Red Hot Canucks in the first of back-to-back meetings in Denver. Though the Colorado courts had dismissed Moore's civil lawsuit earlier that month, the fans' vitriol for Bertuzzi was on full display. Some wore prison jumpers. Others engaged in obscene chants. Almost everyone booed loudly. May didn't wish his friend any ill will, but he was anything but sentimental come game time. I was playing for Colorado at the time. I want to beat Vancouver. I remember Vancouver coming into Colorado and played two game sets. I thought that was a great thing the NHL did after the lockout and they should still keep doing it. But they came in and I got to spend some time with my friends and then you go out and you play hockey against you know their team. And yeah, I played for Vancouver twice prior to that, but you know what? My allegiance is with the Colorado Avalanche in 2005-06 and you, know, you don't look back. 
Colorado won both contests, and goalie Dan Cluche didn't finish either of them. The Canucks keeper was pulled midway through a 6-2 throttling in the first game and was injured early in the second one. Cluche exited that affair after his head collided with the goalpost and would miss the next two weeks as he recovered from a concussion. Despite the consecutive losses in Colorado, the Canucks entered November with the second-best record in the conference at 8-2-2. The West Coast Express was picking up points, but had yet to display the dominance they'd become known for. Bertuzzi, in particular, hadn't found his form, which, as analyst Ray Ferraro points out, is completely understandable. Well, I think it would be really hard for Todd to play like Todd Bertuzzi again. Like, it's it's one thing to say, oh, that's in the past, and I'm going to move past it, and but you still got to go out and do it. And he would only know the challenge of that. But I, I assume it was, a, it was a pretty big challenge. I always played on the edge of hockey, borderline suspendable some plays, but that's how I played the game. I had to create space and time for myself, and that's what made me the player I was. And Unfortunately, I had to make a lot of changes in my game in order to confine to the new rules for me. Both Nonis and Burke had noticed. That aggressive, hard, difficult-to-play-against person really wasn't around as often anymore. You still saw flashes of it, but I think that that incident took a lot out of him, and it changed the way he played, and that affects your whole line. Todd was not the same player. You couldn't be. It's the same when people say to me I wasn't the same after my son died. I wasn't. Never will be. And Todd wasn't the same player. It couldn't be the same player. So, no, it was, it was different. Bertuzzi certainly wasn't timid, but he couldn't afford to play on the edge anymore. Borderline calls would almost assuredly go against him. Crawford could see the effect it was having on his star forward, and as a result, his top line. Certainly Todd, I think, was targeted. You know, he didn't get any breaks, I'll I'll say that. I think for the other guys, they hadn't quite figured out maybe uh, the strategies that were going to work best to make them successful. You know, in that year, I thought that the rule changes really helped the Sedins. They were coming into their own. Now 25 years old, Henrik and Daniel Sedin looked like different players from the ones who'd last appeared in the NHL. Naslin first noticed their growth when he joined the Twins at Moto, where he'd witnessed just how much they'd evolved during the lockout. Yeah, they did, especially in the playoffs. They were our best players in the playoffs, despite us losing they carried our team I would say so you could tell that they had matured and they've grown into taking responsibility of being leading players and that really carried over to the next season when when we were back in the NHL again. The Sedin's production in October nearly matched that of Nasland and Morrison and as a result Crawford increased their ice time in November. Henrik and Daniel were beginning to find some chemistry with their new linemate Anson Carter as they tried to raise their level to the standard set by the West Coast Express. To see them do that and, and win games by themselves, and we looked up to them at the time. I think Daniel really looked up to Marcus as a winger, and, and myself, I looked at Brandon, how, how he dealt with everything. And that's been throughout our careers. We've always looked up to the older players and the better players, and we wanted to not beat them, but we wanted to be those guys and be, become better than those guys. And to see them do it every night, we understood what it took. And I would say for us, when we got to play with Anson Carter, I think that was when he made us realize that we could be those players. He put pressure on us to to perform every night, and that really helped us uh, going forward. I think that goes back to, like I talked about that line before, that they wanted to be the guys. 
that's kind of what we set out to become after the first maybe year or two that we want to get better each and every year and it's not going to be big steps but we'll take the small steps every year and I think that was the year when we came back from Sweden and we felt like we had done all the things we could do to be successful and, and playing with Anson too like he's been on some great lines before when, before he came to us and just being able to play with him that year and seeing the, how he prepared and how the expectations he had on himself and his team and his linemates was just a perfect solution and, and alignment for us. The Twins' emergence was a welcome development, as was a much-anticipated breakthrough for Bertuzzi. Here's a pass to Bertuzzi. Todd Bertuzzi in a long oh. scores! After scoring just two goals in his first 15 games, Bertuzzi lit the lamp five times in a three-game stretch, his hat-trick coming in a 4-1 win over conference-leading Detroit, which also coincided with Kluche's return to the crease. Everything seemed to be falling into place as the Canucks rolled into Anaheim a week later to face their former GM for the first time. Kluche backstopped the Canucks to a 3-2 victory, handing Brian Burke's Mighty Ducks an eighth straight loss in the process. But the Ducks had persistently crashed the crease in an effort to snap their skid, and Kluche ended up as collateral damage. I still remember, you know, I was the backup. Kluche was playing really well, and then he got hurt in Anaheim. And I didn't know the extent of it, obviously, at the start. You never know. But then it turns out it's a torn ACL. You're like, all right. And, you know, I guess I got to play a lot more. But I didn't realize I'd end up playing as much as I did. There was dramatic irony to Kluche's season-ending injury coming in a game against Burke the man who defended him for years in Vancouver, but hadn't been able to find a way to keep him healthy. So Ald was Vancouver's starter now. But as he mentioned, no one envisioned him playing anywhere near the amount he would go on to. You know, it's it's kind of a crazy thing with the salary cap. They just couldn't really find the space to bring in another goalie. And even to the point where Wade Flaherty, like I, I feel bad for him too. He was such a great guy. He was having a great year in Winnipeg. And the whole idea at the time, the rules around re-entry waivers and like, they didn't want to call him up because I think they were scared of losing him on re-entry waivers where he would have been essentially half price, I believe. So it was like this weird thing where, you know, I played 67 games that year and I didn't really take over the net till Kluge got hurt a month and a half in. You would never do that nowadays. You would you would never run out a guy like that. It was just the law of diminishing returns. And by the end, I was exhausted. Ald had never played more than 55 regular season games at any level of hockey. But he would start 55 of Vancouver's remaining 61 games because of the salary cap issues he alluded to. Ald performed well initially, and the Canucks continued to win more often than not. They remained atop the Northwest Division as the schedule pushed into December and toward the roster announcements for the upcoming Olympics. Vancouver would be well represented at the 2006 Games in Torino, Italy. Naslin, Oland, and the Sedins were locks to play for Sweden. Jarko Rutu and Sami Salo for Finland. And Ed Jovanovski would once again be a part of Team Canada. But would Bertuzzi join him? No one questioned his ability. His scoring touch seemed to be back, and his size was an obvious asset. But he remained an extremely controversial figure. Would the risk of creating too big a distraction outweigh the benefits Bertuzzi could bring to the lineup? In his final game before the decision was to be made official, Bertuzzi stated his case. Saved by Morrison on the short side. Now McCarthy behind the net to Bertuzzi, comes up, scores! Bertuzzi on the backhand wraparound, and the Canucks have taken a 2-0 lead. 
Bertuzzi scored twice against the Oilers and then got word from the greatest oiler of them all, Wayne Gretzky, that he would, in fact, represent Canada at the Olympics. Well, simply, he was a good hockey player. He could skate and he had size. And, you know, one of the things you forget about, too, is we were going over to a different size ice surface when we went over to Italy in, in 06. So we needed guys that could skate and compete. I will say, though, that my resume spoke for itself as far as getting an opportunity and a nod. Very fortunate that Mr. Quinn was there and, and Mr. Gretzky, who I vitalized growing up and still to this day, very much look up to him and appreciate that I was given the opportunity to represent the country. If that decision was made today under the same circumstances, same background, it's like the world would explode. At least the hockey world would explode. It was a, an incredibly contentious and surprising decision at the time. And it, it's not that Todd Bertuzzi didn't have world-class skills. It was just, it was Todd Bertuzzi. You know, it was the guy who had attacked Steve Moore, the guy who now seemed to carry so much baggage with him everywhere he went. And that's what was surprising about the selection. Ian McIntyre's point speaks to the storm that continued to swirl around the burly winger. His Olympic selection reignited another wave of discussion about the incident and more, who was still not healthy enough to play hockey. But those questions had never really ended, according to Nonis. Every market we went into, it was a topic. And it wasn't a topic just for the one time you were in. If we were playing within our conference multiple times, it was brought up again and again. And I think as much as you try to ignore it and go past it, difficult to do when it is at the forefront of every road game that you play. Bertuzzi wasn't the only one interrogated. Naslin fielded questions as the captain. Morrison by virtue of being his linemate, and Crawford as their coach. Try as they might to put the incident behind them, it was proving impossible. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think after that, things weren't the same, and I can't put a finger on it, but not just that he would get reminded everywhere he went and, and get asked about it, but the innocence of, of our love for, for hockey and playing together, it did take a, a turn at that point. I would agree with Najee there. I think he brings up a valid point for sure. And it seemed like no matter what, at some point, whatever city we were in, they would always seem to come back to, you know, that incident. Like when you have to talk about something that's negative all the time, it kind of puts a downer on things, you know. And, I, and I'm not saying that, I'm not finger pointing the media or anything like that. I mean, they have a job to do and I understand that, but it just kind of lingered for whatever reason. Uh, it, it was significant for sure. You forget how personal it is for the players to, uh, you know, have to be in front of the media all the time. And I like that. I mean, Marcus is a very smart, intelligent man and that losing their innocence, I think that's that hits it right on the head. Earlier in their hockey lives, they were a sexy line. They were a line that was really admired and feared and sort of things. Now they were being sought in a different frame. And he's probably absolutely right. It wasn't Kansas anymore to, to steal the line from Dorothy. But they certainly all were man enough to take the responsibility. Uh, you know, those were difficult, difficult times, and they manned up quite well. If you just looked at statistics... It seemed as though Bertuzzi and the West Coast Express were handling things relatively well. Nasland was on pace for 90 points and nearly 40 goals. Bertuzzi was close to a point per game, and Morrison remained productive at both ends of the ice, 
as the Canucks continued to contend for another division title throughout January. But the weight of the constant scrutiny was taking its toll on Bertuzzi, who seriously considered quitting hockey on numerous occasions. Oh yeah, yeah, a lot of times. Many times it was just like, I don't know, I could never be myself, I could never, I don't know, you walk a tightrope in life now. Um, you're scrutinized for anything that you do. And when you're playing hockey, it's very hard to play under millions and millions and millions of eyes watching you 24-7 what you're doing. Whether it's like on a face-off, just whacking a guy in the back of the leg, all that stuff became scrutinized and eyes on and changed you. It had changed Nasland as well. Though he had nothing to answer for with respect to the Bertuzzi-Moore incident, he carried around an irrational guilt for his role in the whole ordeal. Yeah, I, I did. For some reason, I felt partially responsible because because of the bond that me and Todd had. That Todd felt that he had to put himself in that position, maybe to validate our friendship. I mean, he he always wanted to look after me, whether it was whoever that that did something dirty or or half dirty, he would look after me, and I, I, I just I feel terrible and everything that that happened after that. The incident had also further divided Bertuzzi and Crawford. The fracture in their relationship had only grown as the pressures of the season mounted, and while both continued to do their respective jobs to the best of their abilities, communication between the two had become dysfunctional at best. Like There was a point where I even didn't want to be an assistant captain because I didn't feel like going into meetings with uh, the staff and all that. There was just a lot of unanswered and talked about stuff, and we just tried to put a Band-Aid on a, on a bigger cut than there was. I mean, they almost couldn't even be in the same room together at the same time. And I think part of that, well, a big part of that was obviously going back to that incident, and now there was lawsuits being filed and fingers were being pointed so, I mean, there was some animosity there for sure. And I wouldn't say that Todd and Crow were always, you know, best of friends, but I think they had a mutual respect for one another for what they did and what each one brought to the table. But it did get to the point where, I mean, Crow couldn't even talk to him, right? Like there would be times he would come to me and say, hey, Mo, go tell Todd this, you know, go say this, or, you know, vice versa. You know, we'd be like, I'm not talking to him, you tell him. That's not healthy, right? The same exuberant players who had first captivated hockey fans four years earlier were rarely spotted anymore. Teammates like Alden Linden certainly noticed the change, as did Canucks color analyst Tom Larscheid. I think it had such an effect on Bertuzzi. You know, he gets charged, he has to go to court. It was a real rough time for him, I think, emotionally. I think it had an effect on the whole line, to be quite honest with you. Because, you know, they fit together like a glove. And now all of a sudden you've got one guy that emotionally isn't, you know, it's had such an effect on him. I don't know. It just, the spark wasn't there anymore. Maybe that's the best way to say it. The spark just wasn't there anymore. You know, obviously only those three guys can really tell you what it was like, but I didn't see as much joy out of playing and scoring goals from them as I'd seen in the years previous, right? They were kids. They were kids playing a game they loved and they were having fun playing a game they loved. And then after that incident, it was like the fun was lost. That 5-6 season, that's what it was like. The fun was gone. And the West Coast Express loved the game. They had fun doing what they were doing. And once the fun was out, 
it was an uphill battle. The climb would get more difficult in late January. Having already lost Jovanovsky for a month with a groin injury, the dynamic defenseman re-injured himself almost immediately upon his return to the lineup. It was determined he would need abdominal surgery to correct the issue, meaning Jovanovsky would not only miss the upcoming Olympics, but a good chunk of the Canucks' remaining schedule. Nasland, as it turned out, was also playing hurt. Though he had continued to play and lead the team in scoring, his injuries had become significant enough that just 10 days before he was meant to travel to Torino, Nasland announced he would forego playing for Sweden at the Olympics. Well, that was one of the more difficult decisions I've ever made professionally. I knew that probably the last chance we would have, we, I'm saying that the core group of the guys born in the early 70s, to have a chance to win together. And especially after losing in, in 02 in a, such a dramatic fashion when we lost to Belarus, we wanted to get revenge for that. And with Henrik Lundqvist emerging as a number one goal, and you knew that you needed someone to play at his level to win. I knew that we would have a good chance of winning, but I had problems with my hip and my groin for a long time leading up to the Olympics. It hindered myself. I couldn't skate. We were fighting for a playoff spot that whole year too, and I I wanted to make that push for the last few months of the season. Tough decision to make, though, knowing that this was probably my last chance to win something with the national team. Many Canucks fans applauded Naslund's decision. In their eyes, Sweden's loss was Vancouver's gain, as the Canucks captain showed how committed he was to leading his team to the playoffs and perhaps a Stanley Cup. Naslund persevered through the pain right up until the season paused, and Vancouver went into the Olympic break, two points back of Calgary for the division lead and fifth in the Western Conference. Sweden wasn't the only nation to lose a prominent player due to injury. In addition to Jovanovski, Scott Niedermeyer, arguably Canada's best defenseman, was also unable to participate in the Olympics. And Gretzky says that loss was a major reason for Canada's shocking seventh-place finish in Italy. I think that part of what happened with our hockey club is we really missed Niedermeyer. Uh, Scotty Niedermeyer got hurt. He's a guy that's going to play 28 minutes a game and can skate backwards, forwards, sideways. So that was kind of a blow to our hockey club. But, you know, we got beaten a game, I think it was Switzerland, but we outshot them something like 48 to 10 and lost one, to one or two nothing. We just couldn't score. But Todd played really well and he was deserving of being on that team. Bertuzzi posted three assists in Canada's six games. But no Canadian player registered more than four points. The Olympics experience was an awesome one for myself, my family, and my friends. Unfortunately, we didn't have a very good outcome. We just couldn't score. You look through the lineup, we had tons of talent, good on the back end, good goaltending. We just couldn't put the puck in the net. And unfortunately, we lost to uh, Russia, which was hard. But the overall experience was something that uh, I'll never forget. And I was very grateful for the opportunity. His Swedish and Finnish teammates from Vancouver were enjoying their experience even more. The two Nordic nations advanced to the final, with Sweden winning the gold medal for the second time in Olympic history. I try to not dwell on things. It's easy to look back and say, okay, well, I should have gone and I maybe would have won a gold medal. But on the other hand, I don't think it's fair to commit to something when you don't feel that you can help out the way you're supposed to. And in this case, Thomas Holmstrom got a chance to play in my spot and did a good job. So... Yeah, it would have been fun to win something with, with those guys, but I made those decisions for a reason. As the NHL schedule resumed, the Canucks expected they'd benefit greatly from the Olympic break. 
They hoped the euphoria of their multiple medalists would stay with them through the stretch drive. They hoped Bertuzzi's disappointment would drive him to dominate. And they hoped those who rested, including Nasland, would return refreshed for a playoff push. As it turned out, very few of those things transpired. We played pretty good. It was the Olympics that really hurt us. The Olympics hurt us in so many different ways. It was just mind-boggling the amount of ways that it hurt us. Marcus had decided not to go to the Olympics. I think that hurt Marcus because the Swedes won and he should have been on that team. And I think probably in his mind, it played a little effect on him. Matthias Olin got hurt in the Olympics. He didn't get the medal. He got hurt in the, in the semifinal game. We lost him. We lost Sammy Salo for the rest of the year. And Ed Jovanovsky got hurt right before the Olympics. So I can remember the last part of that season. I mean, we had Sven Butenschon was leading our defense corps uh, out on some of those games. And nothing against Sven. He's a great guy. But it was just remarkable that we were able to keep it together as much as we were uh, at that time. Though Olin's shoulder and rib injuries would only cause him to miss a few games, losing Sallow in the midst of a career year was crushing for a back-end already down a top defenseman and a starting goalie. With his team in the thick of a playoff race and the trade deadline approaching quickly, Nonas had a decision to make. Move young players in exchange for more impactful veterans or place his faith in the group he'd assembled coming through in the clutch. Dave Nonis refused to trade the Sedins. He refused to give away good assets for short-term help that might have gotten them into the playoffs. But again, the way things had gone, just making it to the playoffs wasn't going to be good enough. The team, if it did make it, was going to have to do something. They'd have to, at a minimum, at least win a round again, at least get to the second round, to mark a high from 1994, and we're now talking about, you know, 06, 12 years later, they hadn't been past the second round. Nonas attempted to bolster his back end by adding veterans Keith Carney, Eric Weinrich, and Sean Brown. He also brought in backup goalie Mika Noronen in an effort to keep Ald's batteries charged. He was betting on the team he believed in, and a resurgent West Coast Express. Vancouver lost four of five games following the deadline and the Canucks' top line failed to produce. They suddenly found themselves on the playoff bubble, in jeopardy of missing the postseason altogether. But back-to-back victories led to four wins in their next five games. And while the West Coast Express was chipping in offensively, it was Vancouver's second line that was leading the charge. Stays in behind the net, Daniel Sedin, all in circles, Henrik Sedin looking for someone up front, Carter I still remember like late in the year thinking like I don't know when it happened but you switched like when we needed a goal like Anson's gonna score like that line's gonna score like they were the ones who started to feel were like the clutch guys at least it felt like we we were playing up to their potential I mean they were still producing at a high level no question about that but we got a bigger role and we, we were able to to pace ourselves with, with them and that for us was a big step where we, we felt that we can compete with with those guys on a nightly basis and it was not a, a given that they would get the most ice time or the, the first power play unit every time so for sure that that year was when we felt that we could compete with the best with seven games to go the Canucks were closer to winning their division than they were to missing the playoffs and they were getting Jovanovski back for their final five games. The odds were in their favor. 
but an early April swoon pushed them to the brink on the final weekend of the season. Needing a win to stay alive, the West Coast Express rose to the occasion, creating three goals and combining for six points against the Sharks. But San Jose struck five times en route to eliminating Vancouver from postseason contention. It rendered the season finale somewhat meaningless. But given the uncertainty of what the future held, the game felt more significant than it otherwise would have. Speculation had already begun on what changes might transpire that offseason and whether the West Coast Express would remain the collective face of the franchise. Depending on your point of view, it was either ironic or perfectly fitting that Colorado was their final opponent of the season. With all of that as a backdrop, the West Coast Express put on a show for a packed arena. No one knew the answer to that question quite yet, including Dave Nonis. They were still a very effective line. If you look at some of their numbers in those years, they were still very good. But you weren't seeing that type of production that you saw in their really high-end years. And I think this, again, there's a bunch of reasons for it. They were different players at that point. They had changed a little bit of how they played. They were marked by other teams as well. So I think there was a little bit more of a challenge to them. It wasn't for lack of effort or it wasn't for lack of preparation. They just didn't have the same output as they did, you know, in their high-end years. Which is what everyone expected. They weren't bad in any, in any way, but it's the expectations and having to live up to them. And that's a big part of even today. What do you expect from a player? And that if the expectations are really high, it's tough to live up to. I think that goes with that line at the time too. As years go by, you get older, the game changes, it becomes a faster game. There's a lot of things that change uh, over a season or two. So it's tough to say why they didn't have the success that people thought they would, but they were still good players. It's funny because pre-lockout, they were like considered like young, up-and-coming stars. But you wouldn't have that same view of them in today's NHL. And so there is a reality to time. There's a reality to father time slowing you down a little bit. And, you know, there was this, this surge of youth and young talent as well. The emphasis on speed. And not that any of those guys were slow, but I think that it probably leveled the playing field a little bit. And they were so good at something that no one else could even comprehend doing. And now all of a sudden more teams were playing a little bit more wide open and and playing with more of that offense that it wasn't just such a big separating factor anymore either. Naslin posted 79 points and led the team in scoring for a seventh straight season. Bertuzzi was third with 71 points, while Morrison's 56 placed him fifth among Canucks scorers, with Henrik and Daniel Sedin occupying the other two spots. But everything was ridiculed and scrutinized to the end for a lot of us like people would die for having stats like that on their worst season coming off a lockout year and coming off life-changing events in retrospect it was unreasonable to expect Bertuzzi to flourish that season in the aftermath of the incident with Moore he'd been forced to change his game and that took away what he depended on to make him special according to Ray Ferraro sometimes you think that will benefit somebody but maybe Todd needed the combat because there's increasingly less combat in the game less conflict as I'm thinking about it Todd needed conflict I would assume in summer hockey 
Todd wasn't very good. Some guys are all-stars in summer hockey because there's no contact. There's no conflict. Some guys need the body. They need a one-on-one battle. They need a fight to the front of the net. It raised an obvious question. Could Bertuzzi become dominant again? And if not, what was the future of the West Coast Express? I just think there was a before and an after for that line and Todd Bertuzzi. And Todd Bertuzzi's before was the West Coast Express's before. And Todd Bertuzzi's after, never the same player after that. And maybe when you're that impactful, if you're never the same player, maybe your line just can't be the same. Maybe there's too much there for others to try to fill in the gaps. That's how I look at it. It was the before and the after. And just as Bertuzzi's career was never the same, after that incident, I don't think the West Coast Express could really be expected to be the same after that incident. And then there was the matter of the Sedins, who had earned a more prominent role moving forward. They definitely took a big step that year and deserved to be the leading line. I mean, we still had probably the majority of the power play time, but they're getting more and more quality ice time too, which, which they deserved. They were taking over as the premier group, and I think that's part of it, too. You know, there was a transition happening in our team where the West Coast Express now was certainly caught by the Sedine line, if not passed by the Sedine line at that time. And that's challenging for players, too, because, you know, from being the guys that were first out on the power play, first out at key times, whether it's at the end of the period or things like that, now they were sharing that responsibility. And I think there was probably ways that myself and the coaching staff could have done a better job of handling the group. I think that was part of it as well. We were willing to share duties with these guys. If these guys are going to put up stats like that and play the way that they played, That just means you have another line that is that deep and that lethal. So it wasn't like we need this or they need that. It was just a season that just couldn't work. In large part due to the continuing conflict between Bertuzzi and Crawford. I didn't change a great deal at that time. I was demanding. I was very forceful in how I wanted the game played and what I demanded of people on the team. I thought I communicated well, but the world was changing too. The world was changing and people wanted more input. And maybe I wasn't great at being a guy that accepted input from other people in the way that I do today, in the way that I've developed, in the way that I've adjusted. So I can take certainly a a strong amount of the criticism for that. I didn't think it was as bad as Todd made it out to be, to me anyway, directly. But obviously to him, it it wasn't great. You know, I think that was part of the reason why he wanted to move on or at least look at it. But I think Mark supported Todd as well. And yes, he may have been hard on him certain times. And obviously the incident that happened plays into that, you know, the feelings that they they had towards each other. But I didn't think that it got to the point where they couldn't, you know, coexist. But obviously for Todd, it was becoming a real problem for him. And I think that was the genesis of his discussion with me. Bertuzzi had made it clear that he and Crawford could not continue together in Vancouver. He hadn't demanded a trade, but he was open to one if Nonis was intent on keeping Crawford. Well, it was going to have to be one or the other, that's for sure, because we were stuck in a rut, and in order to get out of the rut, something had to change. So I think collectively, everyone came to the conclusion that ended up happening. That left Nonis with a critical decision. 
get rid of his coach or trade Bertuzzi. It was a choice that would largely define his tenure as the Canucks general manager and one he'd have to make very soon. Coming up on the final episode of Unreal West Coast Express. What's the best scenario for me, the player, and you, the team? And we had a very open discussion about that. I wish I would have been able to stick it out and all that, but I just thought there was just too much cloud over the situation. I remember having several conversations with Nasty on the plane or on the bus, and yeah, he was miserable, man. Like, he just was not having fun. It was challenging, I'm not going to lie, feeling that you're not going to get as many chances when you're expected to score goals was also an adjustment. It was just sort of a changing of an era, which happens naturally. It's a life cycle of a team. Unreal West Coast Express is a production of Toolkit Content in collaboration with Go Goat Sports. Audio production is by Andre Deacon. Writing and narration is by me, Scott Rintoul. Podcast supervision comes from Aaron Johnson. NHL game audio courtesy of the National Hockey League. Special thanks to the following NHL personnel. Hannah Riednauer, Matthew Maniker, Teresa Wiltshire, and Nick Martinez.